Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm John Hare, and you found the place where we talk horses. On today's show, we have a very unique guest. She is a cooperative extension agent with the University of California. Her name is Julie Finzel, and she's here to talk about what the cooperative extension agent can do for you and some of the problems that we all might have with pests and our horses. Welcome to the show, Julie. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Great. We're out here at uh, boarding stables here in Bakersfield, and because we wanted to be outside uh, with all the COVID stuff going on, we wanted to see if, well, we just wanted to get out of the house, right? Absolutely. So, Julie, tell me a little bit about what a farm advisor, cooperative extension agent does. Sure. That's a really good question. So UC Cooperative Extension, we actually celebrated our centennial just a few years ago. So we've been around a long time. And our, our mission is to take the science from the university and make it practical and usable for everybody. Here in Kern County, we serve, we serve lots, of different, um, lots of different types of people. We serve farmers and ranchers. We serve the 4-H community. We have a nutrition program. We have a, a horticulture program. So it's really broad, and that's sort of ubiquitous across California. We have pretty broad programs that serve all types of agricultural producers and also, like, like I said, 4-H and, and nutrition. And so, but anybody can contact the Cooperative Extension, and if they have a problem, we were talking earlier before we we started recording this about I was trying to grow tomatoes and I was having problems with them. I called the Cooperative Extension agent, and he gave me some good advice. So it's open to the public, really. Absolutely open to the public, and we are we are free. We just give advice. And about all kinds of animals, or pretty much farm animals and livestock. Mostly farm animals and livestock. And if it's anything medical, we're going to refer the caller to a vet for sure. But just sort of basic things about like vertebrate pests, um, growing tomatoes, things like that. We can answer a lot of questions. Oh, cool. By the way, Julie helped me with the hay analysis. She found me a hay probe and we got to um, analyze my stack of hay. And we were talking about other topics and I said, you know, I've got these pigeons that are uh, kind of messing up in my water trough there. Is that, is that going to cause a problem with my, my horses? And you said, well, we can talk about that. We could talk about the different pests that might affect horse husbandry. So what about those pigeons? Are they causing my horse any damage? <laughs> Typically, no, they're not going to cause any problems. There are some concerns with like, like birds pooping in the water troughs. But a lot of times you can vaccinate for that. So it's really something to talk to your vet about and see what the risk factors are for your horse uh-huh. and what you can do to protect them. If you can keep the birds out of the water, it's, it's a good thing, but that's not always possible. So. Yeah. When it's 100 degrees out here in Bakersfield, they, they need a place to drink. And I think they, they found, they found uh, our place. So. Absolutely. What are other kind of pests that might cause problems with horses? So I have gotten calls in the past about ground squirrels, people just concerned about holes in the pasture and and horses stepping in them and injuring themselves. Mice in the hay, Uh, you might, um, if you have a barn, you might get some sort of creature living in your barn, like a raccoon or an opossum, or I read recently about like birds nesting in the barn. So there's really a lot of different things that happen, can happen when you have hay and horses and poop and bugs and all the things that go with having a horse around. 
Right. Instead of pest control, is it uh, in is it environmental management? I don't know if that's the right term or not. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So. The, the technical term is integrated pest management and takes like a big picture approach to how to how to control them and how to try and just make the area less hospitable, just a place where they don't want to be as much. And so it really considers a lot of different factors in, in how to deal with each pest. And how would we do that with, say, for example, squirrels? Yeah, so for squ- <laughs> squirrels are a challenge. I always want to start with habitat modification, which, which means just changing the area to make it a place where they would be less likely to want to be. And so with ground squirrels, that's kind of hard because they live in the ground, so there's lots of habitat for them. If you reduce, say, the food around for them, then that helps too, right? If you reduce available food, but you have hay, and usually there's some sort of grass or a tree or something. Um, people think ground squirrels don't climb, but they can climb trees when they really are hungry. They will climb a tree and they will eat the leaves. So it's thinking about their food source and how to, how to just encourage them to not want to be there. And so that would be like keeping no open feed bags and things like that, right? Definitely, yeah. So feed storage, it, like if you have grain, th- keeping it in a trash can, that helps with r- mice too and any rats. Mm-hmm. So keeping your feed if it, other than hay, right, because hay would be hard to contain. But if you have it in a bag, keeping it in a metal trash can. And do squirrels like hay? Squirrels like hay. Squirrels, the, so squirrels and their preferred food change throughout the season. So in the spring, when our grass is green in California, so it's actually like late winter, early spring, our, our grass is green in California, and so they really like to go out and eat the green grass. And then later, as the grass starts to turn and go to seed, then they're going to be looking for the seeds, for the grain. And then later on, they're going to be looking for other kinds of food, right? And so it's thinking about what's their preferred feed right now if, they're, if you have rangeland nearby, mm-hmm. and what are they going to be looking for, and what's going to be the most effective method for trying to, to control them. For the first couple of years, I kept my hay on the ground and noticed that the squirrels, I mean, the, the uh, gophers would come up through and then they would actually just tunnel through the hay. And they must have just thought that was uh, was heaven because they didn't have to, they got a tunnel and it was made of food. So <laughs> <laughs> That was an excellent gopher habitat. <laughs> so now I put a rubber mat down and uh, that kind of acts as a barrier. They don't do that anymore, so... Plus, I trap the gophers and try to keep their population under control. So Yeah, so little things like that, like putting a mat or a pallet or something under your hay where they, they can't just climb up straight up from the ground and tunnel in makes it where that's, that's habitat modification. That's a really good example. And in other parts of the country, they may have other kinds of pests. I may not get this exactly right, but I, th- I have a friend in Iowa I was telling you about, and they have a... a problem with possums getting in their feed and I think the disease is called EPM and it's a neurological disease in horses and it's quite debilitating and horses usually die from it. it are there are there problems with rodents or animals like that here in California? There certainly could be. It might be a little bit better question for a vet specifically about diseases. They're they're that's, I mean, that's what they go to school for. They, they learn about the diseases and where they come from and how they're transmitted. So it would be good to talk to your vet about local hazards. I, I recommend everyone have a good working relationship with their veterinarian, for sure. 
if we, if we just consider ground squirrels as an example of how to control burrowing rodents, mm -hmm. like gophers, and in Idaho they have whistle pigs, and in other areas there's other burrowing, burrowing rodents, right? And then if we talk about opossums and, say, raccoons and sort of larger vertebrate pests, we can talk about ways to, to control them. And so opossums are omnivores, I believe, I might have to double check that one. Okay. But they, I know they like fruit. And, and they'll, so they eat really a variety of things. So if you have fruit teas around, you're probably going to have opossums. You're probably going to have rats to think about too. And so you have to think about all the things in your yard, the things that we like to have around too. For us, they're going to attract pests. And so we have to think about ways to, to control them or how we want to live with them. Because some people don't want to get rid of all the pests, but I've gotten calls tree squirrels were eating all the lemons or all the oranges and, and the people wanted to eat the oranges and they really had a difficult decision because they loved their tree squirrels. So it's really thinking about what are your, what are your goals and, and what's, what's going to be a good fit for you. And so when you mentioned integrated pet management, there's got to be some sort of pest control chemically wise Absolutely. I mean, and then so how do you handle yeah. that i mean yeah so that's going to vary by state based on the laws integrated integrated pest management but but the whole idea of integrated pest management is that we're considering all the different tools that we could use to control a pest or to to make a place uh, somewhere they don't want to be so that's starting with habitat modification just looking at your area and what makes them want to be here and what can you do to change that well, you want the orange tree, so you're probably not going to get rid of your orange tree. You're right. going to find another way to control whatever it is that's eating your oranges. So to that end, we start looking at other control measures. So trapping is always one. You mentioned trapping with gophers, mm -hmm. and that's a really good one. Provides sort of feedback, really good feedback. You know if you were successful or not, right? Right. Whereas with poisons, you don't always see the pest. But poisons can be very effective too. And and that's one where here in California, we have pretty restrictive laws mm -hmm. with, with pesticides and rodenticides and how they can be used and where they can be used. So that's where talking to your local cooperative extension agent or advisor in, in California we're called advisors in other states they're usually called county agents talking to them and finding the resources for how to know your local your, your county laws your state laws and how all that's going to apply yeah yeah so one of the reasons I was trapping those gophers is because we have cats now of course if the cats were doing their job I wouldn't need to trap <laughs> the gophers but if I poison them then that would pat and the cats found a dead gopher and decided to chew on it then that would probably be fatal too. So I have to kind of look ahead before I indiscriminately just say, I'm going to get that gopher and poison them. I, you know, what other environmental factors are going to be affected by that, right? Right. That's a really good point. And, and that's a common concern that I have pets and I don't want them to eat the poisoned thing that I poisoned. And it kind of starts to get into some, some of the specifics of, of state stuff, which we can talk about because it'd be a good example. Okay. But I like you bringing up your cats and them doing their job because having dogs and cats around help. And every every cat has a different sort of prey drive. And so it just kind of depends on the cat, whether they're going to be like a cat that really wants to hunt or a cat that's happy to, to just kind of lay around and purr at you occasionally. Dogs like rat terriers and things, certain, certain dog breeds are just, that is what they were bred to do. Right. And so having a specific kind of dog might be helpful. Too. And, and then the dogs, of course, you can tell them to go get the rodent, whereas a cat, 
is not quite so easily directed. <laughs> um, you know my cat. <laughs> <laughs> Your cats are probably like many cats. <laughs> so, um, so with gophers, there there's a couple different there's a couple different rodenticides you could use, but one of them is specifically applied below ground. So if you were to have used it, the gophers were most likely to stay below ground and then your cats wouldn't have been exposed. Okay. There are other rodenticides that are up, um, used above ground, and so then it's questionable where the gopher might have died. But gophers like to stay below ground, so they're most likely to die underground. There's the other thing to consider with rodenticides is they have a different level of secondary toxicity. So that's kind of a big mouthful word, and it basically means how long does the poison stay in the system of the rodent, oh. and then how much of that poison could be passed to something that ate it. Right. And so we have two different classes of rodenticides. It's called a first-generation anticoagulant. Uh-huh. So anticoagulant means it's going to make the blood not clot, right? right. And second-generation anticoagulant. And so the first generation has a lower risk of secondary toxicity, which means that it's processed more quickly in the, in the animal's system. So then by the time it dies, it, there's less poison left in the animal. Oh, interesting. The second-generation anticoagulants, which in California are only licensed for use near buildings, 50 to 100 feet from a building, are, have a much have a higher risk of secondary toxicity, which is why they're licensed for use only for like rats and mice near buildings because we're trying to avoid uh, non-target animals eating the poisoned rodents. Got it. So you wouldn't use those on a golf course because there may be other animals that are, are populating that and they would be in danger. Yep, that's right. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that. Now, what about skunks? Are skunks a, a problem at all with horses? Skunks can be a problem. They like fruit too. They like cat food. So skunks are omnivorous. I, I know that. They'll eat a, a variety of things. And and they're attracted to lots of different things. And maybe skunks aren't a problem with horses, but maybe they're a problem with your dog that you have around your horses because your dog wants to chase the skunk. Maybe gets sprayed a couple times right. early in the morning when you're getting ready for work. And so... Um, <laughs> you say that like it. You look like that might have happened to you. It happened to my husband. Oh. <laughs> He was really upset. (laughs) So skunks can pose a problem in other ways when they're around. Like maybe they're not a problem with your horses, but maybe they're more a problem for you. Or maybe they spray your dog multiple times because some dogs don't learn very quickly. And so what can you do about skunks? And and the first thing, again, is habitat modification. Why are they there? Are you feeding your dog or cat outside and leaving it out all night? Could you pick it up at night and just bring it in? You know, you can still feed them outside, but what if you picked it up and brought it in? Right. Or, or just made sure it was empty every night so that they weren't coming in for the cat food. But they do like fruit trees, even lemon trees. Even though lemons are, are kind of sour to us, they'll go in and they'll eat the lemons. So do you have fruit trees? Okay, well, you probably want to keep your fruit trees, so then you might have to trap the skunk or something like that. And usually with the larger animals like skunks, opossums, raccoons, you're going to use a live trap. It's always important to pre-bait your traps. Make it something where they feel really safe going in. Find a good location where they don't feel like wide open in the middle of your grassy area. Probably not the best place to put a trap. You want to put it along a wall or behind something where they feel like they're hiding and they're safe getting their food. Pre-bait it. Get them to where they're comfortable going in and out. You know they're eating the bait. And then set the trap. But once they're kind of established, trying to, like just picking up the food bowl, that by the time you notice there's a skunk coming around and you start picking up the food 
that skunk's probably not going to wander off and find another food source, is it? I mean, he's going to hang around that area because kind of like a cat you feed, you know, and then if you stop feeding it, they still come back and beg for food, right? Right, right. Yeah, the skunks will probably keep coming back. And they might find other food sources and, and come less frequently, but that's going to take time for them to figure out that the food that they used to eat there is gone, right? And right. so then there may be some conflicts in between. But preventative measures, picking up the food, is a good place to start. Yeah, and then and then the live traps, and then um, as far as so in California, you're not allowed to move the animal. You're not allowed to move ground squirrels, skunks, opossums, raccoons. You're supposed to euthanize it on site. Oh, wow. And so depending on where you are, obviously, uh, if you're outside city limits, you can use just you can just shoot them in the head. Right. right? And um, another option is a really simple carbon dioxide chamber that you can build at home and you can get your carbon dioxide tank from like a welding supply. And then you can just euthanize them there in a really humane manner. Oh, cool. So, Julie, what about bats? Are are they a problem with feed and horses and I mean I'm usually sleeping when they're around so I don't know if there are bats visiting my belfry or not. (laughs) Right that's a good question. So bats can be a problem with horses because bats can carry rabies so if you know you have bats around you probably want to make sure your horse is vaccinated for rabies. Again something to talk to your vet about. Right. Um, Vaccinations for your horses and which ones are appropriate. The other problem with bats is um, I got a call from one person who they really liked her, her patio, I believe, and they just were, they were, there was guano, there was bat poop everywhere, oh. and it was, it was dirty, you know, it attracts flies, and it's stinky, and it just was not something that she wanted, and so again, if you have barns or habitat that, that bats like, you might have bats, and it might just be because, you know, you have that building there that's for your horse or for your hay or whatever it might be, and so then it, you know, the, the bats might be a concern. So, Julie, you mentioned that in different states, cooperative extension agents look a little bit different. Now, the podcast is heard across the country. So maybe if someone's in a different state, how would they go about looking up and maybe finding someone who can offer advice to them? Right. That's a good question. Whenever I'm looking for somebody in cooperative extension from any state, Google, of course, Google is super handy. I either include some sort of subject matter if I'm interested in something specific, like I want to know more about fire in Texas. I will Google something like cooperative extension fire. Maybe it's in a specific county and I'll include the county name or maybe uh, there's just something specific. So I try to include some keywords about what I'm looking for. And if it's cooperative extension, then the word extension is more ubiquitous across America than just cooperative extension. It's sort of, I don't know, apparently in California we like to use the full cooperative (laughs) extension, but usually when you're talking to someone outside of California, it's extension and it's a county agent and they do have specialists too, which serve like the whole state. And so it's, it's sort of, the terminology is extension, it's agent, and then county, and you're gonna get to, to the website with the information for that county. And I found you through uh, your Facebook page, oh, good. What, uh, the yeah. UCC extension page. Yeah. And I also noticed, I think you had uh, some, were they webinars or seminars about, was it 
emergency evacuation or fire preparation? Right, yeah. So uh, actually my colleague Rebecca Ozeran up in Fresno and Madera counties, she put on a couple of webinars. Uh, September is Emergency Preparedness Month. And so she put on a couple of webinars just reviewing some of the basics of, of that. It's a topic of interest for a lot of us mm -hmm. because... I think we all anticipate that we're going to get a call or have some sort of issue arise one day and we want to be ready. Right. So uh, among the us California Cooperative Extension advisors that are involved in livestock and range, we all kind of talk about it. You know, like, what are we going to do if we get this call or that call? And so Rebecca was kind of doing some, some game planning for us. Well, cool. You know, this has really been fascinating, Julie. There's a lot of good information in this podcast, and I want to thank you for coming out here, sitting under a mulberry tree and talking about, uh, about the services you provide. It was great to be here, John. Thank you. If uh, people want to find out more information, shall we uh, send them anywhere? For more information about... If you want more information from me, then you can go to my website. And the easiest thing to do, again, is just to Google UCCE Kern County. And you can put my name, Julie Finzel. My last name is spelled F as in Frank, I-N-Z-E-L. Great. Thanks so much, Julie. You're welcome. Thank you. That will do it for another episode. Thanks to Julie Finzel for finding the time to share her knowledge with us. Cooperative Extension Services are such a great resource when you're looking for information about any livestock or farm project. And if you're looking for some interesting and informative articles, Julie's Facebook page, UCCE Kern Tulare Livestock, is a good source. I'm back producing podcast episodes on a semi-regular basis. There are two more I'm working on right now. But the best way to know when I release an episode is to subscribe on whatever service you find our podcast. They're all free. Wopodcast.com is the place you can find all our episodes. There are well over 200 in the library now. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. And we're now on Amazon Music. Speaking of subscribing, my YouTube channel, John Hare and Horses, is the place where I share visually our life and experience with horses. There's everything there, from where we trail ride to the safety features everyone who has a horse trailer needs to know. I'm just short of 3,000 subscribers. Help me get there. Please, stop by my channel and subscribe. And it would be great to hear about your horse. Do you have a story to tell? Share it with us. My email is john at woepodcast.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under the name Podcast. Share a few photos of you having fun with your horse. I love seeing that. Thanks again for listening and sharing the podcast. Please stay safe and healthy. So until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.